Hello, welcome to the podcast. This is a this is a podcast. Among this is a podcast. Many. Yeah, there are many podcasts. There's a new there one. Sisters of Life have a podcast. They do. And and I went and I uh, I told this sister Fiat. I said, "Is that you at the beginning?" Because I said, "It's." It, she said, "I know." No. I had a conversation with Sister Michaela about it. Yep. Sister. Yeah. Yep. So none it's of not. It's not. Anyway, I guess that's not that's, a whole lot of mileage. Yeah, that's. I guess that's how it goes. <laughs> I guess I guess yeah. that's how we are. Anyway, we are one of many podcasts. Um, well, we are one among many podcasts. We are the word on the hill. Yep. We this is the word on the hill. We are the lanky guys. If, My name is Scott Powell. And if the podcast was a metaphysical principle, it would be the one and the many. Okay. Which is the name of a book about metaphysics. Yeah. So I'm, I'm Father Peter Mossett. <laughs> I've, I've just got nothing to add. It's, yeah, you, the, you've uh, what, what you that, put the period. You dropped the mic. Well, that, that's the essence of uh, metaphysics is actually getting to the most simple um, expression of being that one can get to in a philosophically abstracted way. I feel like there's a simpler way of explaining what our podcast is, but that's that's fair. We'll go with, we'll go with yours. <laughs> okay. Um, I uh, am so excited. You guys are in Lent. You're listening in Lent. You know, one of my favorite things to do is is to pay attention on the day after of uh, Ash, Wednesday. Ash Wednesday because everybody's so showered all nice. <laughs> to get the ashes off? Yeah. Except for the, there's been a couple of times where I've been like so tired. You see so some folks tired. still walking around with their ashes? Yeah, you That's can see you know, the, the like, traces. Oh, you're like, dude, it's Lent, take man. Take a shower, man. Yeah, man. So, well, um, we are in the first well, Sunday on. of... I, 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 can I give a... It's not quite a shout out, but maybe it's a... It's a preparatory it's, shout it's a out. word of exhortation. <laughs> Um, this is to Deacon Ned, uh, to Father. I'm my mistake, Father oh, Ned Schneidecker. I can Schneidecker. never say. I, he, I I screw his last name up all the time. That's why I was just going with Father Ned, but <laughs> <laughs> you brought it home in the spirit of being real. Anyway, Father Ned up in Montana. Um, Father Ned has been giving me a little bit of a hard time because he keeps sending me very very long, um, although much appreciated messages on Facebook which I'm not super apt to checking Facebook messages, and so I don't always get them and I don't always respond, which he points out um, to me every time he sends a new one. But I, it, it, so Father Ned, in lieu of my responses, I'm actually giving you a public response Whoa. and a public answer to your last, your latest question. And Father Ned um, said he got a little upset with something I said on the podcast last week. Okay. And it could be some level between um, either I misspoke or there was just a misunderstanding because Deacon Ned, or Father Ned, I'm sorry, I knew him so long as a deacon. It's really well, hard to I know. It, it just out happens that way. But he says, I'm slightly disgruntled to hear your views on the yoke of Jesus in this week's podcast. I was only disgruntled because you said when Jesus said yoke, so we talked about the idea of the yoke, the rabbinic yoke last week, right? Yeah, and not the egg yoke. No, not the egg yoke. Um, because when Jesus said yoke, he meant core teaching and did not mean the implement for oxen. He says, well, I've been Googling and pondering, which is always a dangerous combination. <laughs> Googling and pondering, trying to find a source to back up such a claim. So anyway, Father Ned got the impression, and, and again, maybe it was because I misspoke, got the impression that the two sort of had nothing to do with each other, that, that I was saying what Jesus is saying has nothing to do with the implement that you use on animals to actually do agricultural work. And that's not what I'm saying. And if I implied that, my, I, I was mistaken. The rabbis use the term yoke as sort of their, their summary statement of all of the law in reference to the implement for the animals. That's why the rabbis started calling their core teaching the yoke, because the idea is the law, the Old Testament law is big and hard and cumbersome and long. And to make sense of living it and pulling your life through, you need a yoke that is sensible, that actually allows it to be carried unlived out, right? So the rabbis started calling this core teaching the yoke in reference to the animal thing because that's what held things together, held us together, kept us on the right path and, and such, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't mean, so yes, when Jesus uses the idea of his yoke being easy and his burden is light, it is still a reference point to the the agricultural thing that animals and farmers would use, but they used that common image and then applied it to the heavy burden of the Torah, now yoked to us in a way that's manageable and livable. 
Does that make any sense? Yes. So I didn't mean them to be in opposition or having nothing to do with each other. And awesome. Live. So that, anyway, that, just a clarification. That's great. But he merited it because he has written me so many messages and I have not responded to any of them. Well, there you go. So um, if you the, the moral of the story is if you uh, really need persistent something. Persistent widow. Persistent widow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Our first Sunday of Lent is uh, coming from uh, the first reading. Okay. What is our first Sunday? The, this is the first Sunday of Lent. And, and the our reading first reading for from, the first Sunday of Lent. Uh, it's coming from... <laughs> Wow, I skipped a lot of ideas in between. You just that. jumbled them. They were all there, just slightly out of order. It was a little bit like Yoda. Hey, man, you, that's because Luke had to go to Dagobah for his preparation. That was the wilderness yeah. so that he could prepare to do battle. Dagobah. That's it. Ivan Dag- Drago, baby. Did you hear my, did you hear my reference uh, at Mass? I heard to, about it. Yeah. Yeah, I heard about yep. it. People yeah. were impressed. Yep. So uh, first reading is Genesis 2, 7 to 9, uh, and then jumping to 3, 1 to 7. Okay. Our first reading, so not not coincidentally, our first reading for this season is from the first part of the Bible. We begin in the beginning. The beginning. Our second, our responsorial psalm, rather, is from Psalm 51, verses 3 to 4, 5 to 6, 12 through 13, and then 17. Our reading that is considered the second reading, but mm. is actually the third. Technically, uh, is Romans five to twelve nineteen. Mm. That's the long version, or you can do a skippy version. A skippy version, <laughs> twelve to nineteen. Yeah, and our gospel is coming from Matthew chapter four verses one through eleven. Okay, Genesis. This is the beginning. It's not the beginning. It's the second part of the beginning. I can feel it coming in the air tonight. Oh, sorry. That's Phil Collins' solo work. He wasn't with Genesis at that point? No. I mean, I got the I was tracking with you the whole time. Um, the Lord formed man out of the clay of the ground. So we are in, um, where are we right now? We're within what's understood to be the second creation narrative in Genesis. So it's it's commonly traditionally been understood that there's sort of two different accounts of the creation story. I thought it was like the zoom in. I, I well, thought you, it was like, a, it was like a j- j- just general overview and then use zoom. So you're assuming I'm saying something that I'm not saying because we've been interestingly formed by the scholarship of the world. So it's always been understood that there's sort of two accounts. What I don't subscribe to is that there's two different authors coming from two totally different traditions at two different, different periods in time. Don't agree. I think the same author is telling the same story from different points of view. Oh, okay. Which is what you're talking about. It's what's called the resumptive, uh, the the synoptic resumptive technique. So there's a, a very common and very prevalent school of thought that says, no, there's two completely different accounts of creation that are contradictory to each other and that kind of trip over each other that were written by two different authors at two different periods in time in Israel's history and then later stitched together. I actually don't think that's true and that's not the traditional belief of the church. But we have always held that, yeah, no, there is two distinct tellings of what happened at creation. Yeah. But one is just... So Genesis 1 through 2, 4, I believe, is sort of, it's narrative 1, it's the big picture, the the seven days, all of these things that took place, light and darkness and sea and sky and, and the big universal picture view. And then in uh, verse ch- chapter 2, verse 4b or so, it I think it's verse 4b, it zeroes in and says, okay, now I'm going to tell you the story again, but I'm going to zero in on this particular aspect of creation, which is the creation of humanity. Mm. And here's how that looked. And here's how that plays out. So it's two different tellings of the same story from different perspectives. One is big picture. One is zoomed in and focused, right? Yep. So that's what we get. We're in the zoomed in and focused one that says, I want to tell you more about humanity's specific and distinct place place, place. within the created order. Dude, the in the synoptic, synaptic, synoptic, resumptive, resumptive. Te- technique. So synoptic or, means or to see together, scholarship. but resumptive means to resume again in a particular, in a way oh. of seeing synoptic and seeing it in a particular way. I want to do a hip hop country line dance. Okay. It's called the synoptic resumptive. The synoptic resumptive. Yeah. That's cumbersome. <laughs> That's but, for, but for aren't, the DJs. But aren't all line dances... Yeah, no, this is the name. I'm just imagining the 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 DJ at the middle school dance. It's like, all right, now everybody is going to do the synoptic presumptive. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So, I, you know what? I, I was just thinking about what you were saying. And, okay. and like, the the really important part about scholarship is that it's a co- consistent framing of what we receive. And we actually don't, we, we oftentimes are not, 
Um, I mean, I actually am presumptive about the fact that I am, a, I have received the synoptic resumptive um, worldview in the way in which I engage the scriptures. And that's yeah. not actually always the case. And I think that that's a, it's just a very interest experience, interesting experience for me hmm. that I've never, um, um, I've never been inaugurated into the um, the hermeneutic of discontinuity. Okay. That, that, that okay. In, in, in fact, that what, what we're looking yeah, for yeah. is to dissect these parts so yeah. that we can understand uh, authorship without actually trying to say, like, how do we in, engage with the content and the narrative? And, like, and, and just but, but, saying, I, but, this but that's is the how text. I'm framed. Yeah. Well, but that's the right way to frame it and saying, this is the, te- I mean, whatever you think about the different authors or agendas that went into this, the, the, even if you study it outside of a faith context, right. at some point you have to admit, okay, well, this is simply the text that we've been given. Right. We should deal with it on its own terms, not create a bunch of terms that we have to put it up against. Because that's not how you read any piece of literature. You read literature on its own terms because it's doing something and trying to evoke something. Right. So um, we're trying to, to, to be fair to the text. But in that spirit, so we zoom in on the creation of humanity, and there's there's a million things we could talk about. It's a really long section. Yes. But I think as far as uh, applying it to the rest of the readings, there's something that the church wants us thinking about in particular with this. Now, it puts it in a context that's a little longer, but I think if you go through the scheme of the rest of the readings, there's something very specific that, that the church wants you thinking about. So it says that God created man out of the out of the, the clay of the ground. He blew into his nostrils, right? The, the, the spirit, the same word in Hebrew, by the way, for spirit, wind, and breath. It's all the same word, which all have the same sort of characteristics, right? They're things that you can't see, but you can feel the effects of, right? right spirit, that's... wind, and breath. That's why I try to brush my teeth before I go into the confessional. Because you can feel the effects, baby. That's, yeah, that's so, sometimes I I have great sympathy for all altar servers around the world because sometimes um, uh, priests have bad breath and then they sing stuff and then you can just see the wavering altar servers. When so they sing it like up. at the altar servers? Well, yeah, they oh, when they're the holding the book. book. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah and they're like, right at breath level too. Yeah, man, mm. it's like you know. Mm. So so like I, I you know that's why I call it the dragon breath, man, because yeah, yeah. it's a result of the fall. Especially if you're like on your fourth mass of that Sunday and yeah, that's they've what come I'm saying. back to back to back. That's to what back. I'm saying. And you've been right. fasting and stuff. Oh yeah, that fasting makes for weird bad breath. So anyway, so like, okay, we, we started in Eden. I I learned a a really interesting kind of set of ideas around the, um, around even the word Eden. Okay. Talk to me. Because uh, the Septuagint uh, translates this as to. The Septuagint, by the way, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Paradisos, Mm -hmm. which is. Uh, 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 um, originated in Persian, which is Mm. paridaiza, meaning an enclosed park or a pleasure ground. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, like it's like, you know, it's kind of wild. So paradisos, um, but then the in the Vulgate translated it and passed it on to the Latin. Yeah. Um, and so Eden is interpreted to mean kind of like pleasure or paradise. Yeah, it, which is evoking something. Right. I, it, because I, I'm, the church gives us some freedom here. I, I'm not of the school of thought that says if you had a really good compass and map, you could find the location of where exactly Eden was. I am of the school of thought that Eden represents all of creation, which was meant to be the pleasure ground, Edenic, right? This paradise world that our original sin actually brought a brokenness into the whole created order. Right. But by wording it this way, by making you think of a park, an enclosed beautiful garden park where you can enjoy that's distinct from the rest of the kind of dark world, it's evoking something about creation in, in you, or it's meant to do that. You right. Well, no, it actually comes from, it has an uh, etymological derivation mm. from the Sumerian edinu, which means a plane. Oh, P-L-A-I-N. Plane. Not, yeah. not an aeroplane. Not an aeroplane or like somebody who doesn't wear makeup. Plane. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's a plane, which is funny because it's, a, it's like a designation as a part of a wider geographical location. Hmm. Um, so hmm. so yeah. w- w- what's interesting is a commentator, though, that I was reading was saying that it, it actually has, um, well, yeah, yeah. Uh, that that because it's actually designated to be in the east, that it's actually part of a location. Uh, it's a it has both this sense of spatial but temporal meaning 
uh, as in like primeval, like in the Mm. east. It's from everything comes the east. It's the same reason why we sun comes up. Right, right. Why we face east liturgically. Right, right. So this kind of like this or, 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 or this sense of origin. East is meant to evoke the, the mention of it because we can't forget these are these are primarily people who are not terribly literate who are given these texts for the first time, which meant they need to be written in terms that you're going to remember. Like that image is going to stick with you and you're going right. to remember that because you're not reading a, a, you know your pocket Bible. Right. You're hearing things that are poetic and memorable in their imagery. Right. And you're like, oh, yeah, the e- oh, that's where the sun comes. It's the origins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm getting that. It's all this. I think we forget as, as Westerners who are looking at a text that comes from a different culture and part of the world, how evocative this text is meant to be. And especially the creation story, because the creation story for so many of us is so tired and heard over. We've heard it a million times, but we're not hearing it like it was meant to be read, like it was mm. meant to be told, evoking these things. Like, like literally, you should hear about the serpent. And you should be creeped out. You shouldn't think of, I think one of the, I'm going to be very careful with, well, I'm not going to be careful, but I'm going to say something that could offend people, but be cool. You're looking at me with those eyes. It's not that bad. But I think one of the worst things that happened to the reading of the creation story is little children's Bibles. Because I have, we have three kids and we're from a really strong Catholic community. So I can't tell you how many, how many my first Bible or some version of it we have on the shelves at home. Like the little kids' Bibles, you know, the hard uh, paperboard Bibles and stuff. And so many of us, especially parents, I guess, or all of us, we're so used to all of these cartoony images of Adam and Eve and the little snake and the little apple that we just have created this category in our brains for this story. And we don't hear it in the sense, we, we th- to the degree that you think of a cartoon garden snake wrapping its way up a tree and you don't hear the Hebrew word Nahash, which evokes um, a serpent beast. It can be a dragon. It could be an alligator. It could be a python. It can be something that's actually meant to freak you out a little bit. But we've been so kind of conditioned to hearing this story as kind of a, a children's fairy tale kind of a thing yeah. that we don't catch all of the depth that's actually in here. You should hear that there is a serpent making its way through the garden and you should have chills run up and down your spine. I'm going to read you. I'm going to read Uh-oh. you what somebody wrote about this. Okay. It says, the serpent has always been a creature of mystery. Mm. With its venomous bite, it can inflict sudden and unexpected death. It shows no limbs, yet it is gracefully and silently agile. It has glassy eyes, lidless, unbleaking, unbleaking, strangely lustrous, having a fixed and penetrating stare. Its longevity and the regular recurrent sloughing of its skin impart an aura of youthfulness, vitality, and rejuvenation. Small wonder that the snake simultaneously aroused fascination and revulsion, awe and dread. Which is why it's a perfect, the church gives us freedom to say, we don't know what the author is trying to, we do believe, we are bound to believe as Catholics that there is an original human man and woman. Yep. Wherever exactly biologically they come from, there is a moment of new creation where there's an implantation of human souls in these beings. They are new. Mm -hmm. We are bound to believe that there is a malevolent being trying to frustrate God's plans. We have freedom to determine and try to guess at whether the author is using some poetic license to describe him as a serpent because it's meant to evoke a fear and evil. Everything you read. Right. We don't know if it was actually a serpent crawling around, but we right. know that there was something and it's the, being described to us in terms that are meant because what you read is such a perfect analogy for sin, for well, evil, the, 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 it, it draws us in and revol- re- revolts us, re- makes us revolt, reviles, reviles us. us simultaneously. All of these things are what it's supposed to be doing, right? Well, and also we have to remember we're in a tree park. <laughs> the yeah. garden, garden, Pleasure garden. Park. The, well, I mean, it's funny because yeah. it, 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 it's, it's not like a bunch of like garden beds and stuff. No. No. It, what does it says? It says it's uh, the um, spring up every tree Various that is pleasant grew. to the sight yeah. and good for food. Which is like saying that this is this abundant land that you can go to yes. any of these trees and yeah. all this stuff. It's that there's absolutely no one. It's luxurious. A land of abundance. A Luxury. land of abundance. But then yeah. you think about a snake in the midst of all of those branches and it's hidden and it's like, 
I also don't think the text is meant to evoke a snake. I think that's our fundamental error with reading mm. this. The author is not trying to make you think of a snake. And I know that for a fact. Whoa. Because in chapter three, when God gives the punishments for the original sin, what yeah. punishment, what consequence does the serpent get? Pulls off its limbs and crawls on its belly. Right, he has to crawl on it. Which tells you that prior to that, he's not crawling on its belly. Mm. It's not a snake, whatever it is. This word, it's used elsewhere in the Bible to describe a dragon. It's used in Deuteronomy to describe a big sea beast. It's used in Exodus to describe a, a cobra, right? Um, if, if we believe the most traditional readings of Genesis being written around the time of the Exodus... One of the symbols of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's power was a, a cobra and a snake's head that was on his thing. There's a story in Exodus about, you know, when, when uh, Moses and, and Aaron, they're turning the, the staffs into serpents. Yes. In the earliest translations, the understanding is that they turn them into a crocodile. That's what the Nahash is. The Nahash isn't a snake. In that case, it's a crocodile who eats the other crocodile that, that Pharaoh's um, magicians all created. So, I mean... It's not thinking of it just as a snake. I think it reduces this word nahash that has a lot more possibilities, uh, partially because of the terror that's meant to evoke. But also, we know it has legs. Whatever that means, it's something a lot more threatening than our little kids' fairy tale Bible stories make us think that it is. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that's really important for what comes next. Well, okay. So this is actually what I've uh, like when I when I've been looking at this text this time. The thing that actually is the most frightening part of this is his framing of all of the questions. Okay, is that is that in, in fact what we're what we're like what we're the like, serpent's framing the serpent's framing of of the uh, the knowledge of good and evil yeah. of how God is in, is doing all of this because he's setting this question in such a way that it's a trap absolutely and and, and that's what it means when it says in in chapter three what is it verse one. The serpent was more cunning. Some of the translations say it was more subtle, but it's, it's a linguistic statement. He's going to twist words. He's going to subtly change the nuance of what it seems like God is doing. He's a wordsmith in the worst possible way, right? So exactly what you're saying is is what you should be saying. Like, wait a second, you're, you're ever so slightly twisting words and, and creating agendas on the part of God, and you're putting things in people's mouths, and that, that's not okay. Which is precisely why I say the academic worth of discovering truth and communicating it mm. is absolutely one of the is paramount culturally. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so as we're dealing with framing and like that, that's actually how I'm <clears throat> looking at this this whole expression. I mean, the the uh, uh, that we're encountering in the first s Sunday of Lent mm. is that is that we're actually going to reframe how we're going to actually ask the question of salvation. Uh, we're going to reframe. We're going to reconsider. We're going to yes. actually yes, look yes, into yes. our own lives as we're going through Lent, and we're going to we're going to actually have to do a reframe. Because this is, and this is what the church is doing. Right. And essentially, the church is saying, "Hey, I know you've probably heard this story a million times, but here is we're beginning this holy season. Hear it again, and listen to it. Right. And it gives you a bunch of other context to hear it within, which is what the other readings are. And so that being said, here here's my question, and I think this is the crux of the whole issue for how these things fit together. Um, I've always been bothered up until I, I learned really the rabbinic tradition, the, the ancient Jewish traditions on this. I've always been bothered and I've had, I frequently have people come to my office and are angry about this particular aspect of the biblical story. And they always take it out on me because, you know, we're the face of the church, right? Yep. Um, this question of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I actually had someone not long ago in my office saying, so I, I get that your whole job, Scott, is about the Catholic intellectual tradition. So how do you believe, and this person wasn't a Catholic, but they're saying, how can you actually believe in a God that wanted people to be ignorant? Your, tr your whole tradition is based on a God that doesn't want people to know stuff. And how can you possibly say then that you're championing an intellectual tradition? That doesn't, isn't that exactly the opposite of what your God wanted? And I was like, no, it's not. That is to misread what's going on here. And I'm going to tell you exactly the literary function that they're mistaking. Okay. They're presuming and the knowledge. And I'll tell you what the tree is. The knowledge of good, and I like that, the knowledge of good and evil, what they're presuming is that that the literary function being used is antithesis. Okay. Antithesis poses good and bad or good and evil against each other. Okay. 
Okay. No, he's, they already know that there's good and evil. They have to know. Because they they've gotten commands. Evil. You're not supposed to eat of this. That's a good, that's even, an evil. Even before that, back it up even more. What's back Adam's up, vocation up. in the garden? What's his job? He has guard. two tasks. To till the garden and to guard it. Right. And guarding something implies there's something to be guarded from. Right. So Adam and Eve know good and evil. They so also, yeah. The knowledge of good and evil is not, is not being presented as the literary function of antithesis, but the literary function of merism. Now, this is what's interesting. Merism is when you don't say what you're talking about and instead name all of its parts. See, I, okay. So what happens is that is, is you're saying uh, you're saying of the full panoply. You're saying that you're. Uh, I think that, that the whole the whole idea of merism is we we use it in the vows in the wedding. Okay, so for richer for poorer. Okay, meaning I'm going to take the entire spectrum of your life. Okay, for for um in sickness and in health, you actually don't need to say all of those things. You're saying I'm going to actually take the fullness of things. So so it says that the knowledge of good and evil is actually making you uh, above everything. Well, yeah, I, I think the key to it, I, no, what it makes what you said sensible, right? Because again, we're well. Putting it in the simplest terms, because again, we're, this is being given, and I don't mean this in a, in a pejorative sense, but this is being written for and to a, by and large, illiterate people yeah. who don't have the sophistication. So it's in the language, but in the language, the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to know in Hebrew, and this is the crux for me, it's the word yada, Y-A-D-A. And yada in Hebrew doesn't mean knowledge in the sense that we, it's not gnosis in the Greek, right? right. So we think of knowledge in the sense of to know about right? I read a book and I know about, you know, I, I saw the play Hamilton. So I know all about Alexander Hamilton, which is different than to know someone or to have her. So it's the same word that's going to be used later on when it says Adam knew his wife in the marital sense, which is not knowing about, it's knowing intimately. And so the understanding for the rabbis was, no, the tree isn't about knowing about good and evil, knowing the difference between them. They already know that. The tree is deciding for oneself, arbitrating good and evil. I will choose what is right and what is wrong. I will choose and I will arbitrate and I will judge what is good and evil, which is what makes them like God. Because right. God says, no, 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 there's one thing I reserve only for myself, and that is I write into the laws of nature what is good and what is evil. Well, that and, is not our, our our jurisdiction. And that's what makes the specific words that when she yes. references the fruit, she says, what does she say? I don't know. I don't remember. Um, she says that... You shall not touch it, it lest you die. Um, no, it was good for... It, uh, yeah. and, she, and she holds it and it looks yeah. good to her. The word tov in Hebrew. Yeah, to tov. And so w what happens is that, is that it's the same way that God used to define what the, the garden yeah. was. Yep, absolutely. He says the garden was tov. Yeah. She says, oh, now this is tov. So what's, she's, she's now is declaring what's good or evil depending yes. on what's sensorily pleasing, not de dependent upon God's call, See, command. I, I, I agree with that, but I don't think, and this is where we have to speculate. I'm guessing a little bit. I don't think it's based on what is, what did, what did you say? Um, pleasing to the senses. I forget how you were. Yeah, um, uh, like it, desirable. But it's, I don't it's, think it's, that's it's, what's it's on going desire. on. I could be out on a limb, and I'm not. but I'm not convinced that's what's going on. So what I think is going on is this, and this is what, again, helps me sleep at night with this story, right? You have this thing that we've already ascertained is not necessarily a snake. Something threatening, something scary, something that should literally make your skin crawl is saying to Eve, God is wrong, if you eat this thing, you will not die. That's what he says, which you can read in one of two ways. Either God's wrong and lying to you because you're not going to die if you eat this. Or if you don't eat it, I'm going to kill you. I mean, or, what if we Or see I'm going to kill Adam. Who actually we find out is standing right there the entire time. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the language is in plural. So, yeah, so I agree. I actually, like, when I see these things, I think that there's, I think it's actually functioning on all these levels. It is, it is. But then, but then you have the answer built into the story. So what does Eve do? So you have a threat. Let's take this, this speculative theory. You have a threat of death. This threat is happening. I don't see any way out of this. And my primary good is self-preservation. I'm scared. I'm terrified. So I'm going to make the choice to disobey God 
because right now his laws and his rules seem arbitrary and distant and far off. And I'm going to do what seems safest and most expedient in this moment, which is to preserve my life. That act in and of itself is arbitrating what is good and evil. That's saying I'm deciding now that right now what seems good is to save my life. So I will do what this thing is tempting me to do. Probably there's there's sensible pleasure. There, there's probably attractiveness. The, to, the word tov is used, but we also know the tov could be in reference to the effect that it'll have in their lives, which is I want to live. Yeah. I don't want to have to be threatened or killed by this thing, right. which is to ignore the fact that God also said, I'm actually here. I am the Lord God. I am accessible. There is this thing called the tree of life that we don't hear much about, but you get the sense that there is an alternative, but they're terrified of it. And so I, I this is what helps me make, otherwise the story becomes so distant and weird and like, oh, it's really pretty. So I did it even though, but. Well, uh, no, we no, all I, understand, and but, not, but, but I, I think, know that's but what I think, you're saying. I think, I think it's the judgment. I think it's the judgment part. part right. and, and now with the emotional impetus, because I think that there's actually an emotional impetus on the part of Eve. Because what what is um, we know that what does Jesus do? The new Adam, and that's now, where we're going in Romans, right? Yeah. As he dies to himself, so he has to like he he. No, I mean, sorry, he dies. Yeah. I mean, and so and he does that to us. You're right. You're right. But but but, but like, w- what would happen is that he actually has to face off against the serpent. And if if um, and there's a certain sense, I think that Eve perceives because of the commandment to Adam, to Shamar to guard, to guard. and and that that like it, are there are they both sinning? Absolutely. But could it actually have been short circuited if we if they actually had engaged with one another? To actually take counsel with one another rather than to just remain in the framing of the evil one? Yeah, probably. But then Paul takes it a step further. Well, let's let's get to Paul when we get to Paul. All right, let's go to Psalm. Um, and I, I don't think we're disagreeing. I'm feeling I weird. think we're, we're like passionately trying to get to truth is I, what I feel like. I think I we don't. are. But there's, there's just something to me that's like, I, I don't, I understand the emotion of like being in the situation and like, I don't see any way out of, th- I don't know what to do. I feel threatened and everything is terrifying. And I know that the church says like, these are the things we're supposed to do. And this is how we're supposed to live. But right now in this moment, I don't see a way out. You know, I mean, picture, I, I don't know. I mean, any, any number of scenarios, you know, the, 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 the terrified single mother who's living on the streets, who is facing a pregnancy and does not see any way out. And they're like, well, I know I've been told that abortion's wrong, but I can't see any way out of this. Like that all of a sudden makes this story not okay by any stretch of the imagination, but it makes it much more human. Like I know how humans can get in the situation. They're like, I know what God said. And I, I, I think I believe it, but I just can't do it because I'm too scared. And that gives kind of flesh and bone to Adam and Eve's story for me. You know what I'm saying? And yet it's... it. Yet it is presented to us in a literary way that's meant to do something inside of us and, and for us to actually go and to make a judgment to say, yeah. what could they have done? Yes. Yeah, 100%. And, yes. And, and so, so it, it, yes, yes, I can have sympathy for and, and, and understand. And I don't mean that. I just And, and, and I, I can grasp the yeah, import yeah. Of, of their decision and right. I, can, I can do that. But While I also, also seeing what they ought to have done. And yes, in yeah. what, and, and it's actually meant to invoke within us yeah. an ought not to shame them this this isn't this isn't we're we're, we're not living in that zone but to say like oh okay hold on if i am faced with an impossible situation what do i possibly do and you're and and that's why the church exists that's why that's why we have holy friends that's why we have counsel that that we go and we take the tree of life exists right it's literally i mean that's that's the that's the punchline that's built into the story it's like, hey, there is another tree, you guys. I mean, there's lots of trees, right? right? But it also makes clear there is access to something, and that's what they, that's precisely what they do not reach for. Right. They reach for what's expedient for good reasons. Um, okay, which, which takes us to the psalm, which is like this: the song of uh, the grand, the grand song of repentance. Do you know what what the context of Psalm 51 is? Yeah, Nathaniel and and uh, uh, King David has the prophet Nathan come to him and tell him about what happened with Bathsheba and yeah. Uriah and how he uh, was is a, is a horrendous murderer. You're a terrible dude, David. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like 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 you, dude, you, you cold blooded murdered somebody because you had an uh, you had a fruitful affair. Yes. 
that and and like and like he sank so low and and yet he was called out through a beautiful story literarily absolutely exactly he gave him uh he gave him a story of which he made a judgment yes absolutely and then he said that man is you because he was able to see outside of it and say oh yeah i see outside of this story now yes now i know it's me yeah he framed the story in such a way that he could receive it now that to me is the crux of the matter. I've said like three things with the crux, but there's but lots of cruxes there's going on. There's a lot of cruxes on. going on. It must be Lent. But th- this is what makes and and traditionally speaking, this is what makes, makes this is what makes David a great king. David's not a great king because he fought bears and lions in the desert. David's not a great king because he slayed Goliath. David's not a great. King. I mean, those are great. David's not a great king because he fought all these great battles. Those are great things too. David is great traditionally because he recognized his sin and he got back up and owned it and repented and said, no, I see the truth about myself and I see the truth about God and that's the way I can live and move forward. It didn't, it, the, the scriptures don't whitewash David and his sin in his life. They expose it and then they show the gloriousness of repentance. This is what repent repentance is greater than the sum of all your sins. Yes. And that's why David's story is so incredible. And so what I keep thinking about, and I've been thinking about this for years, and it's again, it's a speculative theolo- theoretical question. Um we don't get this in the narrative from Genesis, but right after this in the story it says the Lord God came into the garden looking for them which is this sort of quintessential theological moment of humanity and our relationship with God God is always looking for us and human beings being ashamed of what they've done hid from God and God finds them and he says what have you done which there's an analogy there to Nathan pointing out this is what you have done and I I wondered and I hope I wonder it for my entire life what would have happened If Adam and Eve had said to God, we were scared, we chose poorly, we sinned against you, please forgive us. We really blew it, Lord. Instead of saying, well, no, it's her fault. No, it's the sermon's fault. Really, God, it's your fault. You did all this. I mean, there's people who are caught in their sin. David, again, this is what makes David great. David is caught in his sin. And instead of saying, it's not my fault. Or here's all these other circumstances. Or don't you realize I'm a king? I can do whatever I want to. I mean, all of the little tricks we play with ourselves to justify our sin. David owns it. He's like, no, I did it. I am so sorry. And what, what would the human story have looked like had Adam and Eve said, wow, we blew it. Please take us back. Please forgive us. And yeah. I, I will never know that, but... It's it's an interesting bit of speculative theology. But it seems like the author of Genesis is holding that out in the story as the invitation. Because even the the way that God is named in the story, there's two names for God throughout Genesis. There's there's, um, Elohim, which is what the serpent calls God, which is just the generic form of God. It means abstract, you know, your, your computer can be your God. Your car can be your God. It's just small g God. But the way that the text uses it when God comes into the garden is the God who has a name, um, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, the God of relationship, the God who's looking for us, the God who's not distant and abstract and, you know, law principles, but the God who loves us and who is our father. That's who comes looking for them in the garden. That's not the God that the serpent proposes to them. He says, did abstract, distant, faraway rule giver God really say you couldn't eat the tree? And she's like, yeah, no, he kind of did say that. You can't even touch it, actually. Right. Which is like, oh, it's just just the bad voice. Exactly. But the God who comes looking for them is relationship, first name basis, God, Yahweh Elohim. So I don't know. I think the author's wanting us to ask that question. Wow, what if if they'd have just turned back to him? Because they'll always take us. I don't know. Anyway, we, we sit with that. So then we go into Romans, which is a passage of, of great complexity and um, of navigation. <laughs> it is, but we, but we already kind of set us up for this. This is Paul's long theological discourse on the comparison of the Adam, who we just talked about in Genesis, and Jesus. And Paul is constantly juxtaposing, at least here, Adam and Jesus, the one man, the old man and the new man. Through one man, sin came into the world. And through this new man, grace now abounds in forgiveness. And this is where what you said before has such resonance, I think, because 
what was Adam's job? Adam's job was to till and protect, to guard, to shamar, right? And we know in the story that as his bride Eve is being threatened by the serpent, he's literally doing nothing. He's standing there. Um, there's an engagement that doesn't happen. He does, they, he, they don't do anything. He doesn't do anything. And then Paul goes out of his way to keep saying Jesus is like a new Adam. And he's faithful where Adam is unfaithful. He does everything Adam didn't do. And that's never totally made sense to me in the sense of like, okay, well, Adam did a bad thing. Jesus did a good thing. Like he brings sin. Jesus forgives sin. Like I, I kind of see it. But what does Jesus fundamentally do? And that, that's where I was, I was getting really excited when you talked about Jesus dying unto himself. And he does. There's a self-sacrifice. But not just that, Jesus, I mean, this is what the scriptures are clear on. He dies for his bride. Right. He stands in between the Nahash, the evil one, and his bride, the church, and he steps in between and he takes the brunt of the Nahash's force. Right. And how does he do it? By going on a cross, which then the fathers of the church all call the tree of life. Right. That there is this you have this concept that the act of sacrifice on behalf of Jesus is the tree of life. It's what, it's what gets us eternal life. It's actually what the catalyst through which we are brought back from the dead, his Mm. actual death, his saying, I don't see a way out of this. He says in the garden the night before father, if there's any way out of this, please let this cup pass, but not my will, but yours be done. Right. Which is the inverse of what Ad, what Adam says. Not your will, but mine be done. Right. right. And that's yeah, why he, Jesus is the new Adam. Not just because he did a bad thing, Jesus did a good thing, but he does maybe what Adam was asked to do. Well, and that and that's actually where, like, if you want to see distortion between men's and women's relationships, mm-hmm. all you have to do is look at Adam and Eve and, yeah. and how many men get paralyzed and let their wives do everything. Yeah. And how many, how many times do, does does the distorted relationship where a man just turns into a child and a woman takes care of of everything? And it's and both. You have the flip, one side of the domineering husband, the controlling, or the 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 doormat passive passivity husband. Which yeah. we can't get this right. right? Wimps and is, barbarians. It used yeah, to be said. Yeah. But that's that's the thing. And that again, this shows you like something's not right. I mean. Adam had a responsibility, but I, I like, I, I've never framed it the way that you actually framed it. It's like, even a conversation would have changed the outcome of the scenario. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. they had each other. They actually had access to this relationship. He, d- he didn't break in and she didn't refer. Right. Like, and, and, and which is, which is the yeah. two, which is the yeah. two things that get us all as yeah. men and women into so much trouble. Yes. We just, uh, we don't break in and we don't actually go into reference We're we, I'm, I'm going to control in. it all. We're, yeah, exactly. Yep. Right. Which is a way of, con- of closing in. Right. And it's about me and I will control and I will put up a wall and I'll do what I need to do. Which is, which is, which is why the naming of Tove is I'm going to determine what's good. Oh, exactly. Absolutely. And I don't, I don't in any way um, deny that or or dispute that. We're just trying to get to it. And that's what is it that's appealing though? That's the question. Right. And, and I'll tell you not having to refer to anybody else is appealing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's, that's actually the danger as a priest. <laughs> yeah. I was actually, I, we were just talking about like, how do you screw up your kids uh, to a, a, <laughs> a, I was a, a bunch of folks this morning, like, like, oh, I'm about to be a parent. How do I screw up my kids? Like you've had a lot of pastoral <laughs> so experience with people. And I'm like, oh, everybody, um, everybody like is doing stuff. Yeah. So, um, okay. So which is, brings us into the gospel, which brings us into Lent actually. And it's, it's kind of nice that this gospel reading, I, I was wondering as I was reading through these without having looked, what's the church going to use as the, as the punchline for these, right? We've been set up in this pretty monumental way. I mean, you've heard, right. there's a lot going on in these readings and I was so curious, okay, how's the church going to punctuate it with the gospel? Because that's what the gospel does in a certain sense, right? It punctuates everything that came before because Jesus brings it all to fruition. And I actually didn't expect what the church did, but then I was reflecting on how appropriate it is. So this is, this is Lent. This is the story of Lent when Jesus goes and, and it, this is, you know, Rocky four in the wilderness. And this is Luke in <laughs> the, wherever Dagobah. Luke Dagobah. Yeah, but that's Siberia, what this Dagobah. is. Yeah, same thing. Which is interesting. And actually, if you define Eden as a plane... It's a it's a decimated plane. I, I, there's there's this part of me that thinks that like 
the actual location of of Eden. I mean, we can't find it. We can't get a compass. Mm. But I'm thinking metaphorically, yeah, like yeah, yeah. like the the wilderness versus the garden. Mm. That what if this the wilderness that he actually goes out into w- was actually at one time the Garden of Eden. That the, that it just withered in the same way that we like. Absolutely. So. And if that's true, take again metaphorically. T- if that's true, consistently throughout the Bible, where does God take His people to woo them back into relationship? Always the wilderness, because right. He takes us to the place w- which is the conse- the consequence of our sin, and uses it not to not to wipe it away and pretend it never happened, but to use it precisely as the tool to bring him, us back to Him. Right. That's why the cross is not to be forgotten about, not to be washed away by Easter Sunday, but to be remembered as the means through which we were brought back. Right. Which is why God always uses the wilderness to, Hosea is all about this, right? I'll take her to the wilderness to woo her back to me. It's the story of the Exodus, right? We leave slavery, we go to the wilderness so we can hear God's voice better in this desolation in a certain sense to bring us back to fruitfulness. So Jesus goes into the wilderness. And I've, I've been thinking about this specifically um, as in the lead up to Lent about what it is that, that prompts Jesus to go into the wilderness. And it it says explicitly he was led by the spirit. The spirit prompted him to go. Mm. But right before this, what you get is his baptism and Jesus's baptism. I think we've talked about this in the podcast, right? When God, the father at Jesus's baptism in the Jordan says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Um, That's a quote from Psalm number two, which David wrote when he was doing the coronation for his son Solomon, and which traditionally would have been read on the coronation of every single Davidic king, which means that Jesus' baptism is his public coronation, so to speak. It's his being proclaimed, not becoming king, he's always king, but it's being proclaimed as king. And what do we all want our kings, what do we want our leaders, what do we want our politicians to do? It's every political campaign slogan that I think I've ever heard can be whittled down to some version of, I'm going to fight for you. I'll fight for the little guy. I'm going to protect you. I will fight for you. And so Jesus now becoming king or being pronounced king publicly does what? He goes to the desert, desert, the wilderness. To prepare to fight. To pick the fight, I would argue. Because the wilderness was understood to be the scary place that they kind of understood to be like the domain of the evil one. That's where he hangs out. We're, We're scared of the wilderness. So Jesus goes to fast for 40 days to strip himself of Every, he's been pronounced king. Then he go, I mean, it was, uh, I was leading a, a Bible study with the focus team yesterday morning and it was like 9.50 on Ash Wednesday. And I'm like, I am so tired of Lent right now. And I'm, I'm so tired of fasting. And it was like nine o'clock. And I'm like, imagine 40 days of that kind of fasting, right? Serious fasting for a, over a month. And then at the very end of it, he goes and he encounters the evil one. At, at, at the end of his strength, at the end of any human energy he could have possibly had, that's when he goes and he encounters the evil one. And the fathers of the church, the saints all talked about it as like somebody going into a boxing match and tying one arm behind their back just to show how utterly tougher than the other guy they are. That's what he does. Um, and I say it's him picking the fight because he goes, I mean, as king, he goes to where the evil one, again, kind of metaphorically is. Not to have the fight, though, because the fight will happen on the cross. That's where the battle, the showdown will take place. This is just where he kind of picks it. And he goes out and he's like, what's up? And he gets in his face and Satan comes and he, he, he tempts him. And he's like, I, I don't know. Even theologians are confused. I'm, I'm not convinced that Satan fully understands who Jesus is at this point. I'm yeah. not totally convinced he understands that he is God. Jesus hasn't revealed this in an earthly way yet, so maybe Satan doesn't know either. Because if he really understood that this was the second person in the Trinity, would he be tempting him with bread and with buildings and riches and stuff like that? that that's what makes me wonder, to what degree has God let the evil one in on his plans by this point? Well, okay, so this is what I—this is a strange thing. This is speculative on my yeah, part, yeah. Um, is that— uh, when your soul is, when you're doing well and tempta- like like the woundedness of your soul and you're like actually dealing with things, mm. the temptations of the evil one are kind of exaggerated and absurd, almost because it's it's it, it's an attempt to reframe everything. Yeah. I mean, this is actually like 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 to say like, okay, well, what wh- what do you want to do? Well, he wants to get all the kingdoms of the earth saved. So he's like, I'm going to oh, offer you everything. 
he says, I want you, I, like, like you're actually meant to make the true sacrifice. So here's the temple. Like, 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 I've never thought about you, it. That you know way. what? You're actually meant to feed everybody. Here's a rock. You can just do it. You, I mean, here's I've a rock that's bread. That way. So like, here's all the things that you really want, but I'm going to, but I'm slightly gonna, twisted, but twisted. Wow. I've never thought of it that way. That's the fascinating. Eucharist worldwide salvation and, and sacrifice. And sacrifice. I've never thought about it that way. Actually, I've never either. I just made that really? up while we were talking. That's yeah. brilliant. That was just No, that's money. Well, cuz cuz I'm trying to get this idea of like how Satan manipulates and how he takes what's the most important and then just uh, and and tries to attack at that point. But that's it. Satan's not a caricature, right? And and it's the same in the Garden of Eden. He's not some cartoony snake like eat the fruit, it's shiny. It takes what we see as actual goods. Self-preservation is a good. It's good to be safe and to not die. And Satan takes that with Adam and Eve and twists it. He takes right. the good with Jesus, right? Whether he understands that who Jesus is in fullness or not, right. he takes this at the, at the lowest moment of human strength that Jesus has right. and twists the good. Because he's, he's not a caricature. He's not the big fang, you know, horns on his head, like, ha ha, you know? <laughs> but, but to the degree that we think of him that way, we're going to be more susceptible to his influence because we never see him coming in, the, in how he actually comes, which is perceived good. Like this looks, right. it's tove. This is the word tove, right? Right. It looks good. I know there's a good there, but it, it feels twisted slightly. Right. That's what he does. So this is Jesus doing the opposite of what Adam and Eve do. Right. He says, no, not my will, but yours be done. I, I know who has already arbitrated what is right and wrong. Right. And you are subtly, you are, you are cunningly, you are manipulating language, worldview, and telos, right? To, in subtleties, if you're correct, which I like that take on it, you are subtly, he's doing what he did with Eve. Well, really? Is it really that or is it kind of more this? He's right. Like, oh, that's compelling, right? But Jesus does the opposite of Eve. Eve, and he does not redefine what the good and what the evil is. Right. And so he takes it upon himself, right? Even at that moment, knowing that the ultimate battle will come three years from then. This is the training for it. Right. This is the prep. I, you know, I, uh, it's so beautiful to look at Jesus in this. Like, um, I think, cause like, I, I, I feel like I spend a lot of my time trying to convince people to go for actual intimacy. I mean, I think it's expressed. If there's a twisting that I see in our in our current age, it's a twisting against the intimate. And and I and I like because we're virtualized. Yeah, absolutely. Mother Teresa called us the America the loneliest nation that she's ever seen. We're so And that was poor. before Facebook. Right, before even like 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 we're not connecting, we're not intimate. And so mm. how, so the proposal of the twist is sexuality as intimacy. Mm. When mm. in fact what happens is like oh no, the 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 sex, sexuality when it's expressed it has its substance in all the other intimacies that we're needing. Yeah. Yeah. That we're, we like profoundly need. We need to be able to be known in our ideas and our psychology and right. our spirituality, our emotion. Right. We need to be known in these ways. And right. so how easy it is for Satan to come at us and actually to twist it and say, oh, you want it? You want all those things? Well, here you can just have it right, right now. This seems like it, right? This yeah, seems pretty tove. It's close enough. Right. And, and then we, and then, and then, and then your the eyes are opened and, yes. and the world becomes candy coated in a way that you can't access it and or, have a hard time finding the value. And we get messed up in our charity and our messed right. up our ability to be known and, absolutely. and co covered in shame and, 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 and uncharitable is really the result of covered in shame and uncharitable. That's the name of the podcast this week. <laughs> wow. Maybe. Maybe I actually kind of I like I mean, it. That's well. You guys uh, pray for Scott. He's going to uh, Manitoba, Saskatoon, Saskatoon, Bruno, the Saint Therese Institute. Can't wait to see you guys. Saskatoon is in the room. Love you guys. You guys are also Elwood. Shout out to Iowa or shout out to Idaho. You guys are. Idaho. That was last week. Yeah, they can take it. Yeah, they can take. They can take it. All right, we'll see you guys next time. God bless you. Bye bye. Bye. The Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org slash A-I-C-T. And you can find the Lanky Guys podcast at lankyguys.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next time.